Church. We are here to help each other worship, live, and rescue like Jesus. For more info on who we are, go to cpmodesto.org. A tragic error, and I did not take allergy medication when I left the house. But I lived through the first service, and I am still here, so um, I might make it. Um, so Terry uh, mentioned the poll, and uh, so I think we we have some results. Uh, so the question was, how do you define church? And so up on the screens, um, I am confused because this happened last hour. That is not the math I grew up with. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't know if things have changed, <laughs> but maybe percentages are different. I don't know. Um, but but uh, many of us... Um, Either we really do believe that church is a community living in union with Jesus Christ and each other, or we just did the longest answer, assuming that was right. Um, I, don't know, I don't know the games we tend to, to participate in when we have uh, pop quizzes. Um, but, but really, <clears throat> I know this might look like it's kind of a, uh, like a got you uh, poll. Um, it's really not, because I think the reality is that, that this question isn't the best way to ask this. Um, because, because depending on the context, you could make an argument uh, for really any of these things in a particular application. Um, if you're looking for where you gather on Sundays, you will describe church as a building and a location. Um, we, we all uh, talk about going to church, and uh, we go to church often when there is an event or a program or something we're going for. Um, we, we are technically, according to uh, the laws of our country, we are an organization. Um, and, and, and of course, we are, as we see, a living community uh, in union with Jesus and each other. Um, I think maybe the better way to ask the question is how do the writers of the New Testament present the church? Um, because, I, because I think <clears throat> it is so easy in our experiences to, to have a whole bunch of different ideas and throw out some different things of our experience of, of church and the body of Christ. It was interesting. I was listening to an uh, interview with a guy named uh, Bill Mounts. He is the author of uh, the Greek grammar that has been used since he wrote it in every seminary, and every Greek student has, 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 is familiar with Bill Mounts. Um, one of the things he said in this interview, they were talking about church, and he made the comment that in his home, as he and his wife were raising their daughters, that it was a big no-no and you'd get corrected anytime you use this uh, in, in their minds inaccurately. They, they ruled that in their house, you are not allowed to, use, to, to say the phrase, 
I'm going to church. They said, you're not allowed to use that because he said, we, you are the church, and so wherever you go, that's church. And so he, he just made this rule in his house that you are not allowed to say that. And any time as their, his, their daughters were growing up, they would correct them um, until they would no longer use that language. Uh, and, and so it's, it's interesting, even just thinking about that, but, but, but probably the good question is, how do the New Testament writers present? How do they, how do they characterize? What do they picture when, when they're describing the early church growing? I want to read a, a, couple, a couple passages which are, are not necessarily prescriptive of the church, but they are descriptive of what the church was, what it did, what it looked like. So in, in Acts 2, in verse 42, which we're, we're, many of us are familiar with this, it says, and they, those who followed Jesus, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. And the fellowship is characterized as the breaking of bread and prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And so here is a, here's Luke who wrote the Gospel of Luke and Acts, and he's describing what he sees descriptively the church. And so he gives this idea, he, he says they, they, they are people who are devoted to the apostles' teaching. In other words, they're, they're devoted to the scriptures and they were devoted to fellowship and fellowship is then expanded on the rest of this. And, and so here's this image of not necessarily uh, a building or an event or an organization and really, even it goes beyond that idea of just a community. It actually seems like a group of people who functioned as a family. So later, uh, the Apostle Paul, in Ephesians chapter 2, he, he describes the church this way. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That is a description of not church. <laughs> having no hope and without God in the world. That is the way Paul's describing not the church. And then he goes on and he says, but now, and here's how he describes the church. In Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. As I continue to read this, I want you to, to notice the word peace. 
says, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so he says, this is not church, this is church. And church, he describes, the body of Christ, he, he says it's the household of God. He says that those who are near and far are both brought together by Jesus Christ. And, and so the, the question is this. So <clears throat> most of us said that, that we, when we describe or define church, most of us said that it is a community living in union with Jesus Christ and each other. That does sound fairly representative of what I just read through Luke's eyes and through Paul's eyes. But here's the kicker. Here's the question. Does church feel like this to you? Is this what we experience being part of the church? <laughs> you want it to. Absolutely. See, here's, here's, here's the hard thing. A few weeks ago, I mentioned um, that what we, you know, we, we tend to think of ourselves, and, and I think in every generation, we think of ourselves as being biblical people who follow Jesus, yet for every generation, every people, including us, there is cultural kind of seep that comes into our ideas uh, of, of Jesus and the gospel and how to live as believers following obediently. And that just happens from culture. There's this cultural creep that happens. And so we live in a culture that everything, everything is structured and institutional and hierarchical and transactional. It just is. That is, that, is our, that is our world, which is it's built on those things. And so there's some confusion, I think, even if we say, I believe this, but I don't know that, I believe it and I want to experience it. But another question that's maybe even a little bit more disruptive is, how do I then, do I actually participate? Do I live in the body this way? Like the descriptions that I just read, am I acting that out? Am I living that out? And, and so, so there's this confusion between the institutional structure of the church and the spiritual community of God's people. It's just sometimes hard to wrap because, and, and here's, unfortunately, the experience of, 
of many people who've grown up in church and, and gone to different churches and, and been around for some while, it's possible to dedicate your time, talent, and treasure to a local organization, but never experience the mutual love, hope, support, and peace that comes when united with God's people. That happens. Interesting, in, in that Ephesians passage, Paul uses the word peace numerous times. One of probably the most characterizing things of the church versus not church is peace. And peace doesn't mean actually, in this context, it doesn't mean the absence of difficulty, frustration, or tension, or, or conflict. It means that we have peace. It is a settledness. It is a confidence that in the midst of those things, I'm going to be okay because I'm not the one in charge and neither are the ones who are doing whatever. God has brought peace in the most defined and significant way and that I can experience that in the moment in which I live. Yet often, often we don't experience peace within the body of Christ. And, and so, see, we all know that God dwells within and among God's people, not necessarily with institutional structures. We know that people are the vessels of God's presence, not programming. Doesn't mean programming is bad. But, but here's, here's the problem. When we lose sight of this, we devote ourselves to the preservation of a particular ministry or structure rather than to the purpose the ministry is intended for. And here's what I, here's, I wanna say that this isn't a jumping on the bandwagon of institutions are evil, that we kind of live in that, that environment today. This actually goes way back and it's a biblical truth. And here's, here's, here's where this comes from. When Jesus was walking the earth and doing ministry, he said something to the people and to the Pharisees. He said, the Sabbath is not meant, or man is not meant for the Sabbath, but Sabbath is meant for man. See, the Sabbath, as God instituted it, as ministry, as a, we'll call it a program, maybe it's more than an event, and the Sabbath was designed and God instituted it so that his people would see the value he has in them in calling them to rest and be renewed, not just every so often, but every single week, be in a, a, a spiritual rhythm of rest and renewal for their benefit so that they could obey what God has called them to do and be effective in the mission that God had them on. But what happened over time is the Sabbath was neither life-giving nor renewing. It was not restful. It became something that was a thing that had a life of its own, and it was no longer for people, but people just served the Sabbath, not the Lord of the Sabbath. 
And so what happened was there, the, the, the structure, the, the religious structure then came to a place where they were pres- preserving the Sabbath at the expense of God's people. And again, we need to be careful that we don't think ourselves better or smarter or more impressive than people that we read about in the past because we, history doesn't necessarily repeat all its mistakes, but history does rhyme. And so we see today, even in our culture, in our context, sometimes there's things that we hold on to and we preserve at the expense of maybe what God intended. So that's why I think we, we need to be careful. I think that when Jesus says to the people in Jerusalem, when he says, you know, man's not made for the Sabbath, the Sabbath is made for man, I think we need to be careful that we don't do those same things. So what is helpful? What is helpful? How is it helpful to see the church? So this, this week we start this series of, of who we are and what we do. And so the next six weeks, we're gonna be unpacking uh, our values and then practices that go along with those values, and hopefully it'll bring some clarity. Because here's the thing, the last probably four or five years, our world has gone through a significant change. Governments are different. I mean, if you get into the geopolitics of what's going on today, there's a lot of stuff going on. And things are changing. Things have changed. And even in the church, we have seen a a global disruption within the church. And so over the last couple years, those of us here in leadership at Crosspoint have been trying to hear what the Spirit's saying, see what God is doing, and respond. And, And I'll be honest, it is really difficult because... The stuff that has happened in the last number of years and what God has done has been really eye-opening and a little bit scary and pretty disruptive. But what we're trying to do as we move forward is to say, okay, now all these things that are coming together, what is it that God wants us, one, who does God want us to be and what then does God want us to do? And we've been talking about those things but they haven't been put in a box, which we really love our boxes. (laughs) So trying to help us all understand what that is. And so I think one of the things that is foundational is to understand what the church is. And so I think a great picture that I found um, of the church. So in the world, everything you experience is a ladder, is a climb. Whether it's school, you're always climbing the ladder. Whether it's your employment, you're always climbing the ladder. Even relationships, while we, while, while we may say, no, 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 relationships aren't like that, they are. Like, look at relationships. There is this transactional, hierarchical, climbing the ladder within relationships where we, we are always kind of moving and, and, and people are always posturing for position. And that's just our culture. That's the nature of life. And here's the thing. 
is that it's hard for us to conceptualize and understand and live out anything that does not resemble a ladder. It's just hard. It is arguably hard. But here's the thing. When Jesus calls his church, he does not call his church to climb, he calls his church to come. It's an invitation. And Jesus doesn't call his church to climb a ladder. He calls his church to come and gather at a table. And here's, here's why I am 100% convinced that what Jesus calls us to is not a climb. Because when Jesus was out and his disciples were hungry, his disciples were like, we're gonna go get some food. And Jesus was standing by this well. And this woman came to this well and Jesus had a conversation with her. She was a Samaritan woman. So she was like a dirty hybrid of, Jew, of, Jewish, of Jewish personhood, according to the Jews. And so she comes and after a conversation with Jesus, after first meeting Jesus for the first time in her life, what does she do? Does she go back and start climbing the ladder of getting an education and then she kind of works through getting some some. Uh, some accolades of, of doing some good things? Does she make sure she's got like her prayer life in order? No, she goes back to her village and within days, her village believes in Jesus because of her testimony. Does that sound like a ladder? That sounds like a table. It sounds like Jesus just said, hey, sit here. There's a seat right here. And I want you to eat with me and, and my people and when you get up from the table, I want you to go and tell everyone that they can join the table as well. <laughs> that's, that's what I want. That's, that's what I want you to do. And, and that's what she did. And so that convinces me over, that's just the, that's the most blatant, obvious story. But there's story upon story about how Jesus works and that his family is a table. And here, there's a, there's a biblical path. There's a biblical path, a trail that, that you see from the very beginning to the very end of scripture that continues to reinforce that the body of Christ, the household of God, is a table. Genesis, Genesis chapter two. In the beginning, what did God do? He put Adam and Eve in a garden. And, Jesus, and God would come in the cool of the day and he would walk with them in the garden. It was a meal type setting. It was a garden with food. The, the food, it was, it was all centered around this garden. And, and then Adam and Eve sinned. And then we, we, we see in later when, when God calls Abram to go from the place he is to, to a land that he'll show him. And he'll give him uh, this, the, the, he made a covenant with him. And so at one point, Ab Abraham's doing his kind of nomadic thing and in walks, a lot of scholars believe, in walks like Jesus <laughs> along with other heavenly beings. And what does Abraham do in that moment? He slaughters a cow and they sit around a table. Personally, I just like the fact that he served steak. But anyway, it's a table that he, surround, he brought them around. Then later, one of, probably the most significant event in Jewish history the Passover. God says, I'm gonna deliver you from Egypt. And so God tells the Israelites, here's what you need to do. You need to take a lamb. 
You need to slaughter it. And you will eat the lamb. You will dine around a table and everyone in your home and those who don't have a lamb, they come over to your house, they sit around a table and they eat the lamb. Then you put the blood on your doors and that. But he says, the Passover, the deliverance from Egypt was set at a table. And then later when Moses goes up on Mount Sinai, there's a point in, 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 in Exodus, in Exodus uh, chapter 24 where Moses takes Aaron and two others and then 70 elders, they go up the mountain and it says that they all, the 74 people saw God. It says they saw God and what does it say they did? It says they ate. So the 74 people who went up on Mount Sinai and God's mountain, they saw God and they had a meal. It was a table. And then you get to the New Testament where Jesus' most intimate, significant moment with his disciples was in an upper room around a table. When Jesus said, hey, when you get together and when you sit around a table, I want you to take the bread and the, and the cup and I want you to remember this moment. I want you to remember, and I think what Jesus was saying is, I want you to remember that my kingdom is set at a table and my people remember the sacrifice that I gave in order to give the invitation to that table. And then we go to the end in Revelation 19, something that hasn't happened yet, but we've already received the invitations. It's the wedding supper of the Lamb. Do you see how in Scripture when God's people are described or characterized, it is always connected to a table. You see, in, in Israel, in much of the ancient Near East, the table was used to define a person's community and their identity. And that's why we are talking about the table this morning as we move into who we are and what we do because we are defined by God's table. And so what we do going out from that table is we invite others to that table. See, our culture has even successfully redefined the table into a hierarchy. Here's what I mean by that. Do you know that the cafeteria in a high school and prison is the same thing? It's the same context. You walk into a high school, you know that there is a table that a certain group of students eat at that are in charge. There's also a table in every high school that is this weird collection of misfits who have nowhere to be known or welcomed. And then everything in between. Do you know that that's also true of a prison cafeteria? There's a table that rules and there are tables you don't sit at and you do sit at because there is a hierarchy. Isn't it amazing that our culture, and I don't know, this is just me thinking here. I wonder if the hierarchy of tables is one of the enemy's designs and plans to distract us from who and what the church is because it's almost like we don't even have the table illustration. Because when you walk in, there's different places and different hierarchies. And, and, and so, 
here's what Jesus says. He says, basically, there's one table in the kingdom of God, one table. And that one table, the head of that table is Christ. One table in Christ. Listen to what, what, what the story told in Matthew chapter nine. It says, and Jesus, and as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Here's what's interesting. The Pharisees had a hierarchical view of table, the table. There were certain people who were not welcome at that table. They were looking at it as a climb. The tax collectors and sinners are, I don't even know that they're on the bottom rung. They're like on the ground still. They need to climb the ladder before they get to where we are. We belong at the table. They do not. But what Jesus says here is no. He says, those who belong at the table are those who've responded to my invitation. And my invitation is for everyone. And the Pharisees are like, no, 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 no. But that's what the table is. And so at the table that Jesus, the one table of Jesus, here's the reality. The, the person who has been following Jesus faithfully and living for Christ for 60 years is sitting in a seat next to the guy who has wasted most of his life, even in worldly terms. But one day, that person actually walked into forgiveness from Jesus and is sitting next to that guy who seems to be way ahead of him. That's the table that Jesus has set. Another story in Luke says, now Jesus told a parable to those who were invited. They were in a, in a dinner setting when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher, then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Here's what he says here. He says, look, they're thinking in context of hierarchy even around the table. What Jesus says is, there's no hierarchy around the table. Go sit at the place you think is the lowest, and that's the best place to be because the king of the table honors you. So don't worry about that. So the table tells us who we are and what we are doing going out from there. So what, is, what does all this have to do? I think this is really important groundwork to understand the church, to understand what the New Testament writers saw as church and what Jesus himself envisions and wants the church to be. And, and so a, a couple months ago, 
Travis and Brett and Kyle and I talked about kind of the mission statement that, of our church. Uh, uh, Crosspoint is a family of priest disciples who make priest disciples of all people in all nations, characterized by loving obedience to the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's a great statement. Not everyone's going to understand it exactly because let's be honest, everything we say can be understood a thousand different ways. <laughs> but out of that comes some core values that over the next weeks we want to unpack and also connect with practices. And so I'm not gonna explain all of these core values today that's for the coming weeks, but I do want to tell you what those are. First of all, the first value that comes from that, our understanding of what church is, who we are, and what we do is forever family. If you have Christ, you are in a family forever, <laughs> period. And so what does it mean that we will, those of us who've come to Christ, will be family forever? That's not just something in the, in the next life. That's something that has flesh and reality right now here where we live. What does it mean to be family forever? What does that look like? What, are, what do we do then? What are our practices within that? And the second one is, is this, is spiritual rhythm. That's really, we, we've talked about this a ton of intimacy with Jesus. How one of the things that we are called to do is become deeply intimate with Jesus Christ and with each other, and those are spiritual rhythms. I have a confession to make about spiritual rhythms. We, uh, many of us, gave up something for Lent for 40 days, and then we had Good Friday and then Easter weekend. And each week, I, I encouraged people to continue, you know, kind of participating in that. Here, and I did, I participated, and for me, Lent was a bust. Here's why. I did not feel in those 40 days drawn close to Christ. I felt, I felt like for me, it was almost like 40 days of distancing. I did a Daniel fast at the beginning of the year and, I, and I've never felt closer to Jesus. But, but in Lent, I just felt distant, distant, distant. And in fact, on Good Friday, I was in just a terrible mood all day. On my way to the Good Friday service, I question, why do we even have a Good Friday service? This is stupid. And I got there. I went to the first service. And I have never in my life felt and experienced the weight of the cross and God's unmerited mercy and grace and love like I did in that moment. And here's the thing. The spiritual rhythms that we participate in are not instant gratification. Love what Candace Baxter said when she was up here sharing. She said, fasting didn't work until it did. Lent for me didn't work until Friday night when God communicated something to me without shame but with incredible joy and gratitude of the cost that Jesus paid. Church, we 
We've got to be in spiritual rhythms, not just do it once and then move on and say, I've, I've nailed it. Because God is about long-term transformation. The third thing is obedient discipleship. And that's broken into two things. The what, what is discipleship? And where is discipleship? To, to begin unpacking that and, and really understand. And we've talked a lot about discipleship, but for some reason, and again, in the history of the church, discipleship for some reason is not easy to grasp. But maybe understanding the table and having some practices will be helpful. And then the last thing we want to unpack as a value is the Maranatha cry. And we use that word because Maranatha is come Lord Jesus. And, and here's what that, that is. It is that this side, it is, a, it is a deep desire for Jesus to come as our reward. It is a huge desire inside of us that builds and grows over time so that, so that we just simply want the reward of Jesus to be present in our lives. And so this side of that, that coming of Jesus is characterized by surrender and suffering. But there is joy in that. As we prepare the way for his return, the other side of that Maranatha cry is that Jesus comes and he is the reward for us and he brings everything he promised with. And so over the next five weeks, we're gonna be unpacking those things. And with each of those things, we're going to be giving practices that we are going to be doing as a church. We are going to be asking, we are gonna be doing things that we are and the things that we will be doing. You see, and we, we're calling them practices, and here's why. We choose to participate in practices rather than provide programs. And, and here's the thing, programs are not bad, but programs, we see, we see that programs pretty much, we accomplish something and we move on. You don't stop practicing the things that you want to keep being good at. See, participants have practice, but observers get programs. Like if, if you're a football player, you go to practice a lot. You practice over and over so you can play in the game. When you go to watch a football game, you get a program. Would anyone in their right mind say a guy with a program is as good as the guy who practices? No, that's ridiculous. But it's interesting, even the way, even in the way our, our, more, our weekend gatherings are set up, you walk into church getting a program. And maybe the worship team has practiced. Do we come into church practicing like a spiritual rhythm to prepare ourselves for what God may have for us this morning? Or how many of us just go to church as the next thing to do? And, and so we wanna develop practices because we are not mere observers to what God is doing, but we're joining God in his mission and preparing a place for Jesus' return. Everyone at the table participates. Everybody at the table participates. 
And so we'll evaluate what we do in the context of practices that result in transformation. Because that's so important. So important. And so over the next five weeks, we'll be unpacking these values and be sharing practices. And just for your sake, because we, we always, we want to know, we want to know what things look like. We started at a very young age. We have to know everything. And so, and so over the next five weeks, this is what our gathering is going to look like. Myself or Travis or Kyle are going to talk 15 to 18 minutes. Some of you are like, yeah, right. <laughs> We're going to talk 15 to 18 minutes. And then the next 20 to 22 minutes, we'll be answering questions. Now, in 20 minutes, all of the questions that we may imagine cannot be answered, but we'll get a start. And the questions that we'll be answering are questions that are specific to unpacking that value in those practices that week. That's the priority we'll give. And then after that time of answering questions, we will talk through the practices that we are invited into both now and the practices that we are working on developing so that we as a people look like and act like and live like the picture that Jesus saw when he saw his church. And so that's what we're going to be doing. So I would encourage you this week. Question yourself. How do I see church? Do I see it like a, a ladder? And, and again, maybe it's not that clear, but maybe this was helpful and clarifying of even our expectations. I think there's different expectations of a table versus climbing a ladder. And if I have the expectations that I have in culture, for the body of Christ, the household of God, this temple that's being built, that I don't know we're gonna, I don't know that we're gonna end up at the right structure. We're gonna be the right thing. But if I see it as a table, there's a lot of different things. And there's some different demands. Because when you come to a table, you're gonna be there for a while. <laughs> and you might need to release some things in your schedule <laughs> because you've invited to, been invited to a feast rather than a thing to just do and get out. I'm not saying that everybody thinks of it that way, but I'll be honest, sometimes I think that way. It's not hard. <laughs> and so... I love so much how Jesus at the table said, because my body is a table, every time you gather as part of your festivities, as you're eating at the table, taking the bread and the cup, not only does this remind you of what I've done for you, 
but it reminds you who you are and what you do. And so Jesus took the bread with his disciples that night and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. At that table, he said, do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread. And then Jesus took the cup. And Jesus gave an invitation to a wedding feast. That this cup was a reminder of that feast. And that the invitation that Jesus gave to each one of us was signed with his blood. That was the cost. And he said, when you gather together, remember me, remember who you are. Remember that I want all people to join us at this table. And he said, take and drink and remember. Jesus, I thank you for how clear you are I thank you that you, you invite us to a table. The cost of the preparations of that table, the cost of the setting, the cost of the food, you didn't push that forward to us, but you paid it all. So I pray as, as we seek you and hunger after you, I pray that I pray that you would make us hunger deeply to sit at your table. That we would hunger deeply for others who are missing from your table. We would understand who we are and what we're called to do. And that would be enough. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you feel inspired and moved by what God is doing here at Crosspoint.